Hello and welcome to the Talk Spot. I'm Tim Scott. And I'm Peter Stockham. And this is the International Association of Forensic Toxicologists' very own podcast all about forensic toxicology. We're back for another year. We've got an exciting year ahead, quite a lot of interesting things to talk about. And we're kicking it off today with a five in 30. Five sort of interesting papers that we're going to talk about. It should be fun. And the first one is from the journal Molecules. It's by Palm and Kruve, and it's titled Machine Learning for Absolute Quantification of Unidentified Compounds in Non-Targeted LCHRMS. So in this method, they're not, it's not necessarily a toxicology-related paper, but they look at some of the chemicals that we would look at. And it's an approach that they use for suspect screening of environmental samples, so we're talking like, uh, I don't know, stream waters and uh, water, drinking water and that sort of thing. But the principle could be applied to toxicology samples. And what they're trying to do is quantify compounds which um, haven't really identified them, have they, Tim? They've sort of no. just got some presumptive information that it may be some sort of compound. So what they're doing is they're training a mathematical model to predict how much of a compound is present in a sample. And these compounds that they're looking at, they haven't actually confirmed properly. They're based on a suspect screen. So they have uh, just a, a vague idea of what the compound may be. They know what formula it's got and they know what retention time it's got. And based on their model, they're trying to work out how much is there. Yeah, because this is untargeted analysis, right? So when you're doing untargeted analysis, you're looking at all of these different peaks and you're trying to assess which of these peaks you should take a closer look at and try and identify. You might have some cutoff threshold of peak response. But of course, we all know that the size of a peak the peak response on an instrument doesn't necessarily correlate to its concentration. It depends on how well that instrument responds. You might get a really small peak, which is actually a significant concentration. So if you have a, it could be a, a very large peak, but it may just be that it ionizes very well. It may be just a very sensitive compound. So there's not really that much of it there. Or conversely, there may be a, a tiny peak, but because it ionizes so poorly under your conditions, so you've got, you know, not an optimal source or the solvent system or polarity is not right so it might actually be actually a large quantity of compound there but it's only coming out as a small peak yeah so they're trying to construct a model to give us a better indication of the significance of a peak other than just based on the peak response so they're using all sorts of different parameters here we've talked a bit about machine learning before on the podcast Uh, there's a lot of papers coming out now about it it's quite a hot topic but mostly what we've talked about before is with regards to identification of compounds which it's being used for as well. But this one is focused on quantification. So this paper was a lot of work for me because I had a lot of human learning to learn about machine learning, but it is a lot of work to actually conduct as well. So in order to do this, they took a set of 92 compounds, which they call the training set, and they're all varying characteristics. Think what were they, pesticides and various... Is this just a standard mixture that they've run? They've run it at three different pHs, so um, using formic acid buffer and some carbonate buffer and ammonia. So they've run it at three different chromatograms and at two ionizations. So they've done 92 compounds in a mix or maybe several mixes and run each of those six times. Yeah, so they're trying to vary the LC and the MS parameters to see what kinds of things might affect the response. And 
there have been other models proposed and they're comparing it to some of these other models in this paper. One of these models just uses the structure of the compound, which is, I mean, that's probably the way most of us would do it if we were just doing it ad hoc, look at the structure. But obviously you need to know the structure, which is not always the case in untargeted screening. But uh, there's another model which has an interesting approach where they spike the sample with a few different compounds and the one that's alluding closest to the peak of interest is assumed to have the same response. So it's based on chemical properties as shown by the LC interactions, which, I mean, that's got some advantages because if you've got matrix effects at that particular point, then closely alluding peaks might be thought to be affected similarly. Um, you've also got the same pH gradient coming out at that point. But we know that that's not always the case. You can have very closely alluding compounds, which have wildly different response factors sometimes. And, and the other one was, I think, assuming that all compounds have the same response in the chromatogram. Um, so they're both pretty terrible ways to determine, <laughs> but they're, they're better than nothing. I think that's the point. And this proposed system makes it even more better than nothing. Yeah, because they're not here proposing replacing your normal calibration curve with QCs and, and all of that kind of stuff, validated quantitative methods. They're not proposing to replace that with this model, but this is where you otherwise wouldn't even be doing any quantification. So using some kind of model, at least you get an idea about the significance of something, even if it's not, you know, it's not going to give you a, a reportable concentration necessarily. So after they've trained their, their system, I guess uh, what they had to do was test it so they had another bunch of compounds which they just ran and then they assessed them on how close they were so the machine learning basically i think it's all just calibration curves linear regression and it just imp continually improves the model until it gets as close as it possibly could so that the the training set and test set get as close as possible so compared to those other two methods this one looked reasonably good it was within a factor of 10 of the actual uh, response most of them were. And the descriptors that they're using for this model include things like, uh, they ran it in positive and negative mode. So looking at the ratio of the positive response to the negative response for the peaks, the retention time at various pHs that they ran it on, the M on Z value, whether adducts were formed and so on. So could it be useful in tox? Perhaps it could. I mean, it's a lot of work. I assume that uh, after you've even developed this model, you have to run each sample uh, six times. Three different pHs. And they tested this model three times over the, over the course of a year just to show the, the ruggedness of it because uh, I guess you can do all this work in a short space of time, but sometimes things might change over time, your instrument performance and so on. So they've tested it at three different times over the course of a year, which actually shows patience, I think. You know, normally when you're doing some research, you get your first results and it's like, quick, get it published. But here <laughs> they've um, demonstrated good ruggedness of this model, at least using their particular instrument setup. Yeah, well, I, I never really liked the idea of predicted retention times initially when it came out, but through high-res MPS, that predicted retention times, that pops out, they're actually quite good. So I'm coming around. And you've got to acknowledge the limitations of a model like this. I mean, it, it's going to be wrong sometimes. That's the bottom line. Sometimes it will just be wrong. But if it's right a lot of the times, or if it's at least giving you a ballpark idea of the significance of a peak for all those times it gets it right, uh, perhaps it's worth it. So maybe machine learning is not just having a better guess, or is it just a better guess? I think it's a more educated... It's getting a model to give you a better guess than what you would have done and maybe justifying 
it's easier to justify a model's guess than your own guess, isn't it? Well, the interesting thing to me was after they set up the model, they assessed all of the different descriptors that they'd used to see which was the most influential on the peak response. And the most important one was the positive mode to negative mode peak ratio. That mm-hmm. was the most important one that they found, followed by the M on Z value. Whereas normally, like if I'm running something on the LCMS and trying to work out how it is going to respond, for example, I'll have a look at the chemical structure, obviously see what functional groups are there, maybe uh, look at the PKA or the log P values, these kind of things, which I think are going to tell me about how something ionizes on an LCMS. Yeah, and also the yeah, chromatography. But the implication of this paper is that maybe those things don't influence it as much as we think. It's just more unpredictable than that you know we mm. i think i'm a chemist give me a structure i'll tell you how it's going to work on an lcms but uh, no we can't really we can't it's unpredictable mm. and something important to keep in mind here as well when we're assessing models like this is that even our standard validated calibration curves with qcs and all of that kind of stuff that's just a model too to estimate the concentration of significance of a compound in the sample We're making assumptions about what's happening through that process for our sample, and we know that sometimes those assumptions don't hold up. Well, that's true, particularly with um, you know some sample types more decomposed than others. Things that you just can't predict or you can't model through validation. So, yeah, I think the more studies we can do on the way that things ionize in an LCMS, the better, because hopefully in the future that will help to improve instrument performance as well. Because we know that one of the huge drawbacks of LCMS is the fact that that ionization process just isn't very efficient, just in general, across all LCMSs. That's why you have such problems with matrix effects and things like that, because you're just not ionizing everything. Yeah, that's true. You never know. The other thing I learned about this is don't print out a paper that's got a graph that's in purple and blue to demonstrate two different data series because <laughs> they look exactly the same. See? Look, <laughs> purple, blue. Well, I'm colorblind, Pete, so I'm having even more trouble than you. Mm. So there's a lot more work to do in this space. And as with a lot of these machine learning type uh, papers, they provide the entire source code at GitHub. So if you want to adopt this model just go to the supplementary information also go to github 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 <laughs> go to github i did go to github pete and have a look at the source code for this didn't understand a word of it you don't need to understand it it's a model okay so the next one we're doing is about melatonin so melatonin supplementation in undetermined pediatric deaths and that's by uh, sandra bishop freeman at al and it's in the journal of analytical toxicology and just a trigger warning, this one is discussing paediatric deaths. So if that's a, a trigger for you, you might want to skip through this one. So in this paper, we um, well, in general, we normally think of melatonin as a pretty benign type of hormone. It's a hormone that's involved in setting a circadian rhythm up. It's often advertised as a supplement that you can take to improve your sleep patterns. It used to be often recommended if, to reduce jet lag, things like that. But this one's about using melatonin in very young children. So it's one thing to give these to adults where their endocrine system's fully developed. But children are, where melatonin is produced in the brain, the pineal gland, isn't actually developed until a fair bit after birth. So the logic of providing melatonin to very young children, as in this paper, seems to be a little bit flawed. And in fact, it's not recommended for children under one year or two years, I think. This is written from the United States, where um, 
melatonin is available freely over the counter, I believe. Yeah, which is not in all countries. Every country has different approaches to things like this, I guess. But the marketing behind this uh, seems to be full steam ahead. One of the uh, marketing slogans they note here was the all-natural nightcap. It's amazing that phrase, all-natural, that's used so much in marketing, isn't it, of drugs and supplements and things like that. If it's natural, well, it's harmless. My answer is strychnine's natural. Yeah, exactly. So so this dose of uh, tablet or whoever you administer, it comes in syrup and cough syrup as well for children. One dose will give you 10 to 100 times higher concentration of melatonin in your blood than naturally occurs. So naturally it's um, around about 0.1 nanograms per mil. After a dose, it'll be you know, 10 to 100 times higher than that. But we should note, melatonin is not very toxic. Even in large amounts, in uh, studies of adults, which have been done, you can have quite a lot of it. And it can cause negative side effects like vomiting and diarrhea. But... Um, Overall, it's not a particularly toxic compound. And they note that the sales of melatonin have increased a lot since COVID. And so there's some high-dose preparations now available and products which are targeted specifically towards children as well. I thought it was interesting where they said that that they've done some polls and they've, not these people, but there have been polls on America, surveys in America that say that the American public overwhelmingly assumes that the, the Food and Drug Administration reviews the safety and effectiveness of dietary supplements. But they don't. Um, that's all up to the company who's manufacturing them. I mean, with drugs, therapeutic drugs, that may be different. But for dietary supplements, the only control they have is they can remove them off the market if there's been some adverse effects. And so they had seven cases, which they've noticed, of paediatric deaths with high melatonin concentrations, which would be consistent with administration of melatonin rather than just endogenous levels. And they had a couple of extra cases as well where melatonin was administered but they didn't detect it in the toxicology testing so the cases range from you know very young children less than two months up to four uh, three years old and i guess they're not saying that in this case they're not saying that these melatonin levels were the cause of it but it's just something that people should be aware of either in toxicology labs or pathologists or in public messaging that maybe we don't know or we think we know about uh, melatonin yeah, I think that's important to stress here. They're not claiming in this paper that melatonin was the cause of death or even related to the cause of death, but they're just reporting, hey, we've noticed these high concentrations of melatonin in some pediatric deaths. Maybe it's worth talking about the availability, the marketing of melatonin. Most of these, the pathologists seem to write in the report that they basically didn't know what the melatonin level meant in terms of the death. So that was even for the, the highest case, which was 1,400 nanograms per mil, which is you know, 1,400 times the, the normal concentration. And that was in a three-month-old. Um, but it still wasn't flagged as a cause of death. But it... Yeah, I mean, there's still so much we don't know about paediatric deaths, you know, SIDS and, and things like that. And it's all entangled, isn't it? And it's very difficult to unmesh. So the concentrations range from that very high one. There was one that's 460, 170 nanograms per mil, 80, and way down to the lowest one that they've got in this case study is 10. And the question they're asking here, I think this is a quote from the paper that I've written here, can exogenous melatonin from supplementation play a role in the exacerbation of unsafe sleeping conditions for pediatric patients? That's basically the central question here of their paper, and it's unclear. Yeah, a few of these cases were um, children who were in what they would call unsafe either positions or sleeping with parents. 
Yeah, but they make a couple of recommendations, though. Uh, for one thing, they recommend that death investigators look for packets of melatonin if there's an infant death. And they also note that the presence of melatonin is probably underreported from toxicology labs because not all toxicology labs have it in their screening. A lot of them probably don't. And they're talking from a gas chromatography point of view as well. They're saying that you wouldn't be able to detect endogenous levels, but you may be able to detect high uh, exogenous concentrations and uh, that maybe we should be looking for it more than we are currently. Yeah, so this is a paper where they're, they're raising a question. They don't necessarily have the answer to it, but I like these kind of papers. I think they're quite thoughtful because it's just an observation that they've made and they're saying, hey, let's not just accept this at face value that, ah, who, don't worry about it, it's just melatonin. There might be something there or there might not, but let's talk about it a bit more. Don't just accept whatever you're seeing as, well, this is just the way it is. This must be normal. Yeah, well, quite often working in the lab, you see things that you see trends and a number of results that maybe other people wouldn't see. So maybe tox laboratories are more important in this sort of toxicovigilance scene than we think. Yeah, sometimes we're the first or maybe we're the only ones to notice these kind of trends. All right, let's move on to the next paper. Mushrooms are nasty. Mushrooms are nasty, eh? I think uh, my wife's making beef wellington for dinner tonight. Uh, I hope she's using the right kind of mushrooms. Is she a forager? No, she's not. Uh, She'll be safe, I think. (laughs) But this paper is about the wrong kind of mushrooms. It's titled Determination of Orelanine in Human Biological Matrices Using Liquid Chromatography with High-Resolution Mass Spectrometry Detection, a Validated Method Applied to Suspected Poisoning Cases. And that's by Flament et al. And it's in the Journal of Analytical Toxicology. And when you say they're the wrong ones, I think most mushrooms are the wrong ones. There's only like a few that we should be eating. I mean, because this one's uh, about the, the toxin called arelanine. And I thought, oh, I don't remember that being the main mushroom toxin. That's because it's not. There's like 10 different mushroom species with 10 different toxins. They're all quite nasty. Yeah, this one's from the Quaternarius genus. Yep, mainly found in the United States and Europe, but I did do a bit more looking up on this. There's like 2,000 species, but it's only a few of them that have actually got this particular toxin in it. Mm, and this paper's coming from a group in France. So obviously, these mushrooms are found in France. They're difficult to analyse, a lot of these mushroom toxins, aren't they? They are, because they have... Well, this one in particular has got a delayed onset, so you may have a meal of these yummy mushrooms. It must taste all right, because sometimes... They have two serves or maybe two different meals before the, the symptoms come on between two to 14 days later. That's crazy, isn't it? Such a long... And it appears that we don't really understand why it takes so long for symptoms to come on no. after this toxin is ingested. It mainly affects the kidneys. So a lot of the people who've, who they did the case study on ended up having kidney transplants, I think, and certainly declined kidney function probably permanently. But they... This particular toxin called arelanine is that on, on a rat study that someone else did, they found that it's got a quite a ha- quite a rapid half life. So, despite it having a rapid half life in the blood, about a hundred minutes or something, it's still causing an effect. But obviously, by the time a week or more's gone past, it's very difficult to detect. Then, yeah, so that's what makes this paper pretty significant. Really, they're detecting a a poison that was taken up to twenty days, I think, in one case after they'd had the meal of mushrooms. So that's quite amazing. They mentioned that there's been some studies on rat samples and a couple of others that have been published on human samples as well. But this is the first validated method, apparently, that's been published for these in human samples. 
So another difficulty with it is not only is it low concentration, but it also degrades in light. So everything they had to do was, well, it wouldn't be in the dark in the lab, but maybe <laughs> out of direct light. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those methods where you turn the lights down low, put on some Barry White in the background, where you go. So with the whole blood, they did a protein precipitation and then they followed that by um, a liquid-liquid extraction. And similarly with urine, except they skipped the, liquid, the um, protein precipitation step. They tried solid phase extraction as well, but that didn't seem to work very well, at least for one of the compounds. Yeah, they actually used a bunch of different extraction techniques. They trialled them, but obviously they weren't as good as the one they ended up with. They used a bunch of different liquid-liquid solvents as well just to see what would work. They used some chlorinated ones, which I, I gather worked well, but in the end they went away from them because they're chlorinated for environmental reasons. It is tempting to use chlorinated solvents sometimes because they, they do work very well uh, for extracting particular yes. compounds. So it's, it's a real temptation to use them. But no, from an environmental <laughs> point of view, from a human safety point of view, they're not so great. I remember doing flash chromatography when I was doing synthetic organic chemistry and uh, it used to be like dribbling down my arms as I was pouring it into the top of the column. The lecturer said, oh, no, that's only dichloro, it's all right. Oh, well, it hasn't harmed you in any way, has it, Pete? Nah. <laughs> so they're using a Q-Xactive LCMS to analyse it. They validated it according to the SWIGTOX guidelines and also the ICH guidelines, which I hadn't come across before. I went and looked them up after reading this paper. Well, that's just another set of guidelines from a pharmaceutical point of view. Oh. Here's an interesting thing, Pete. This is, this is a side issue to the actual main point of the paper, but just something I noticed. It's interesting. People have different ideas about when you're validating a method, you construct a curve and you have, you might call them QCs, replicates at different concentrations along that curve. So according to SWIGTOX, for example, you have three different concentrations where you do replicates for precision and accuracy. Yep. But where do you set that bottom and that top QC? Some people will say you should just set it at the outer edges of the calibration curve, right at the, right at the borders there, because then you know that you're establishing precision right across the range of that calibration curve. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. But other people I've heard say, no, you shouldn't set it right at the edges. You should set it a little bit in because the measured values of those QCs are actually going to have some error associated with it obviously and so then it will stretch out to the outer edges otherwise you're going to be using measured values that are outside of your calibration range and then of course some people say look it doesn't really matter just set them at a, a low and a medium and a high whatever you think is suitable yeah i'm not sure either but well to define lower limit of quantification isn't that the that's the lowest concentration where you've done your your replicate analysis isn't it you still may have a calibrator below it so in this paper, for example, they chose to set their low QC just above the lowest calibrator, oh. and then their high QC was, uh, I think, a fair bit below the, the highest calibrator. And the guidelines that they're looking at in here don't specify what it should be. Anyway, that's a, that's a very trivial point. That's the kind of uh, deep dive into irrelevance that you'll get on this podcast. So when it comes to the, comes to the results, they had um, 10 cases, and it's interesting that some of them they detected adrenaline but they've not been able to get a quantification on it because it's less than the limit of quantification so they've it's more than LOD so they've detected it but they just haven't been able to quantify it because it's below that limit and so tricky as well because the the latency time you might even forget that you had a mushroom stew two weeks ago 
and all of a sudden you've got kidney failure in your dinner and you've passed on. Or if you're a forager, you might be eating all sorts of things. Who knows? Was it the mushrooms? Was it the the bark tea that you had last night? We did a paper on that in one other episode, I think. You bark? Yeah, I'm definitely not eating mushrooms except for if they're from the shop. You foragers, you can do what you like. If you know what you're doing, that's fine, but don't cook me anything. So they did detect arelanine in some samples. So this is pretty spectacular, as I mentioned earlier. They're, they're detecting this mushroom toxin which had been taken in one case here 23 days earlier in the urine at a concentration of 0.5 micrograms per litre. So that's pretty impressive. I mean, I guess that's up to just the nature of the molecule itself rather than the uh, actual analytical aspect, but because 0.53 is not out of the question for a lot of methods. But, yeah, it's pretty decent sort of advance in the terms of um, arelanine detection anyway. Okay, the next paper is by Wang et al. It's titled Operation of the Anti-Doping Laboratory for the Beijing 2022 Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games. And that's in Drug Testing and Analysis. So this paper is all about how they ran the anti-doping lab in Beijing for the Winter Games in 2022. This is from the National Anti-Doping Lab there. They also did the Summer Games previously. And this was in the midst of COVID, which is, you know, presented a quite a few problems which we'll talk about. And it sounds like, I mean, I've never worked in a, a WADA lab at all, let alone during a major event like this. But talking to colleagues who have, it sounds like it's a pretty intense experience during a major event. You're working around the clock, trying to get samples out as fast as you can, lots of samples coming in. But the whole COVID thing just makes it even more complex. You've got all these experts and lab staff all combined in one place. If if even one of them gets COVID and then starts to infect the others, it could bring the lab to a halt. So, so they had to operate in what they called a closed loop. So they had all of the staff, and there's quite a few staff, they had 36 domestic analysts plus 20 international experts from other um, wider agencies, plus 61 university students with suitable majors. Not quite sure what they did. Well, they're doing all the extractions, aren't they? Ah, probably. And also 12 on-site instrumental engineers. Yeah, that's something I didn't even think of that. Of course, if your instruments break down, you need someone to fix them. Yeah, and the closed loop meant that they had um, specific hotels to stay in. They didn't mingle with any other people. They even had a support network of over 200 people. Yeah, within the closed loop. This is like electricians, cleaners, doctors, catering, security, all these types of things. It's such a logistical exercise to get all of this working properly. And then there was no contact between people outside the loop and inside the loop, except if, you know, people coming in, they had to wear full PPE and everything coming, all objects coming in and out had to be sanitized. And they also have them in WADA, as you may know, there's, uh, if you question your sample, you have a B sample. And the process is to have the opening of that sample witnessed just to make sure it's the right sample. Now, they couldn't do that, of course, so they had to have uh, cameras set up and on a bench just in case some people wanted to witness opening their samples so they could do that remotely. Yeah, so they found ways to get around all of these things. It's a bit of a, a nightmare to organise all of this stuff. Well, you know, it's probably someone's dream, probably someone's dream job that they got to do organising all of this stuff. And it was a huge success at the end of the day. No one got COVID from in this closed loop. Well, you can just imagine if... The, the impact that would have on the Olympic Games if the, the testing laboratory was struck with COVID and everyone had to go home or no one had to isolate. That would just uh, devastate the Olympics, really. It would just really upset things. So they had to do something. Yeah, and wider requirements 
for sample turnaround times, apparently usually within 20 days. But here they say for major events, they obviously try and speed it up a lot and try and turn it around within 48 hours, which they pretty much did, I think, most of the time. I think there was, they said there was one where it had extra tests requested of it out of the normal loop type testing. Uh, one of the instruments broke just before the games. Yeah. But uh, luckily some colleagues from uh, Tokyo were able to supply them with another instrument. And I don't know if we're going to go through all the whether you plan to go through all the different analyses they wanted to do, Tim. But in one particular test, they needed two um, Orbitrap Exactive Plus instruments. But because of the problems with production and with delivery and that sort of thing during COVID, they could only get one. So that was another COVID impact they had on them. Yeah, I think we've all experienced uh, you know delays with getting stuff in due to COVID. Pipette tips. Worldwide shortage of pipette <laughs> tips. They had a paperless system for the main games, and this system's called Modoc, apparently, which is a. I've just been to see Ant Man with my son. Modoc has a completely oh. different meaning. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to work with a system called Modoc. I'll, I'll have a look at that. So they're analyzing the normal things that get analyzed in a, a wider lab steroids, peptides, EPO, receptor agonists. But the thing that was a bit novel here was that they're using dried blood spots for one particular analysis. They collected from uh, finger pricks. Apparently, that's the first time it's been done at uh, Olympic Games. And that was for testosterone esters. So they've developed a kit in China to collect the dried blood spots. And that's what they used here. And apparently, very successfully. Obviously, in a lab like this, quality assurance is a huge priority, like it is in a forensic lab as well. Same, same thing, I guess. But one thing that can happen, we all know, uh, when you're analyzing lots of samples, is that you can get a mix-up of vials somewhere along the way you know, various transfer steps and things, it can happen. And so one of the things they did here, which may be a standard thing that happens in labs like this, I'm not sure, I hadn't heard of it before, is that when a sample comes in, they will add some, a few deuterated compounds to it that are not involved in the analysis at all. These aren't compounds that they're testing for, but they're compounds that will show up during some of the testing. And so they'd add these compounds to some of the samples, at least 5% of the samples, And then the samples would go through the process. These compounds would be detected just through the routine tests. And then at the end, they would reconcile which samples had these compounds detected, which samples, because they knew which ones they'd added them to beforehand. This was at a management level they're doing this. And then make sure that they all line up with each other. And if there's any discrepancies, obviously that shows that there's been some kind of mix-up along the way, at least for the samples which were spiked. Yeah, so it was done randomly on every 20th sample, so it might have been on the third sample or the 17th sample. But if you mix up two samples that don't involve that particular one, it's not going to really detect it, is it? So it's just like a best effort. No, yeah, that's right. It's not a perfect solution. But it's not like you can add it to all the samples or else there's no... You'll never know if you mixed one up. No, fair enough. And, I mean, they also had some blind, uh, like, proficiency samples going through. Yeah, they had... Internal blind tests, uh, which they took out of the results set before they released it, but they also had double blind um, samples come in, so they they had no idea which sample was a, a quality assurance sample. And then they were, when they released the results, that's when WADA or whoever the organisation body was providing these samples told them, oh, no, that was a QA. So they had more positive QAs than they had actual samples. That was another interesting thing about this. It was a bit different to forensic talks where virtually all your samples are positive for something. These are hardly ever positive. 
looking at the results table, they only had oh they had quite a few positive for some drugs which were um, therapeutically allowed, like um, salbutamol and anti asthma drugs. But there was a there's a cut off. There's actually a threshold at which they're allowed to have that concentration in their urine or their blood. But they only had, as I said before, the main positives were water quality assurance samples and they had, as far as I can understand for this table, only about four or five other, or maybe six other positive samples out of you know, probably over 5,000 samples all up. I did start reading something about, I got quite interested in it. Ah, yes, formoterol and salbutamol would have detected 308 samples. 308, that's quite a few. But their concentrations were below the decision limit. And the other drug that popped up a few times was called brinzolamide, brin, brinzolamide, brinzolamide, which is an anti-glaucoma medication, so it reduces pressure within the eye. I thought, what's that got to do with doping? So I had a bit more of a uh, look up at water sites, and it's, apparently it's a masking agent. And they only had three uh, B sample openings, and two of those were virtual. So they got to use their new camera set up twice. <laughs> <laughs> Worth or maybe it. it was just Worth a couple of mobile phones, I'm not sure. So that was a good insight, I think, into a basically a paper from start to finish about how to organise a laboratory. They had lots of instruments too, Tim, we didn't mention. Uh, there was about 44 instruments, which sort of means... And all diff- there was a couple of main manufacturers there, but there were also some other smaller manufacturers, so you can see why they needed so many engineers. They're fixing the things up. Imagine the pressure on you doing that sort of thing. What a great experience, though. If you're a uni student in a country where they're having a major event like this, go and work in the anti-doping lab for a bit. That would be an amazing experience. I mean, they were, they were the main workforce, 61 university volunteers, and only 36 domestic analysts. All right, our last paper for today is by Otsuka et al. It's in Forensic Toxicology, and it's titled Analysis of Degradation Products of Novichok Agents in Human Urine by Hydrophilic Interaction Liquid Chromatography Tandem Mass Spectrometry. I find these quite fascinating, this whole uh, chemical warfare agent business. So needless to say... Having a quick read of this paper preparation for the podcast ended up taking several hours as I looked up at other terrorist incidents. <laughs> you went down a few rabbit trails there. There's a show um, available called The Salisbury Poisoning. Salisbury Poisonings, which um, talks about the Novichok poisoning that happened in Salisbury in the UK, resulted in a death and several people incapacitated. And actually, I didn't know this. Uh, Novichok apparently was developed in Russia, and in Russian, it means something like new kid on the block because it's one of these newer agents compared to some of the older ones like Sarin and VX. So because it's so new, Novichok... Well, Novichok actually refers to... Uh, it's like a class of compounds rather than one compound. But because it's so new, they haven't been extensively studied as to their effects and, and how to analyse them. And it's a horrible mechanism as well. It's uh, These agents um, covalently bond something to the active site of acetylcholinesterase so that... And that's the... If I got it right, that's the enzyme in your nerve synapses somewhere which degrades acetylcholine and acetylcholine makes the nerves contract. So acetylcholine builds up and you end up just contracting the whole time and basically being paralysed. So you end up suffocating, having difficulty with your heart and things like that. So it's a nasty way to go. Yeah, pretty nasty. So they had to find the either the hydrolysis products of these things or the protein adducts. And these authors did previously develop a method for some proposed hydrolysis products, Novichok, but in that method, they have had a derivatizing step. 
which took a couple of hours. So even though it worked, it's obviously not ideal. If you want to, if you have an incident, you want to turn around these results pretty quickly to see what it is that you're dealing with. So having a, a couple of hours of derivatizing in the middle of your extraction is obviously not ideal. So here they're trying to develop an extraction which doesn't have that derivatizing step. They took these things called Cosmo spin filters, which I thought was a great name. That's a commercial product. I'm not condoning the use of them or recommending them, but apparently it's a two-chambered vial with a filter in between the top and the bottom and your centrifugium and it filters your sample. So you just pull off the bottom bit and you've got a lovely little sample. Yeah, because it was just a simple precipitation and then followed by that filtration that you're talking about. Yeah. That's the sample prep. Probably pretty common things, but I've never used them. And then they did um, LCMSMS on a triple quad. So LCMSMS on triple quads is usually considered a lot more sensitive than, say, a high-resolution mass spec. But it did take 42-minute run. And this is probably due to the fact they're using HILIC, Hydrophilic Interaction Liquid Chromatography. I've probably missed out a letter there. But the difference between HILIC and reverse phase chromatography is that uh, your majority solvent is actually an organic solvent. So you start off using a high amount of acetonitrile and then decrease that, increase the component of aqueous solvent. So completely opposite to reverse phase. But the problem is with hyalic columns, they tend to take a long time to equilibrate, apparently. So that's probably leads to the longer times. Not quite as reproducible either over time, apparently. They've got functional groups on the molecule which are both positively charged and negatively charged. So there's witterines, these compounds, and that's why they don't work so well. Actually, they tried ICMS, iron chromatography mass spec, but um, because there's witterines, that's why they think that didn't work so well. But this hyalic column has a zwitterionic surface, so um, they seem to work pretty well using that. Man, it turned out to be a good choice. They've got some good chromatographic peaks out of it. You don't mind hearing paper shuffling in the background? No, I don't like paper shuffling in the background. You know me, Pete. I don't like any extraneous noise. But it shows that we're looking at the paper at the same time. It makes them feel like they're here. <laughs> they provided quite a bit of supplementary information as well, and they talked about in their methodology that they noticed there was some peak cracking, which I thought, what does that mean? And I had a look at the chromatograms, and apparently when they injected, when they just did a straight dilution with water and they injected that onto the column, the peak was sort of wider and sort of a bit fractured. And that's the sort of thing that you get when you inject too much organic phase on reverse phase. You get that sort of thing happening. So that's one of the reasons why they went for acetonitrile to do the dilution. They analysed these in positive mode compared to some of the uh, traditional nerve agents which have been analysed in negative mode previously. And, I mean, I think the reason they did it is just because it works well in positive mode, but they do suggest the reason why... They tried to work out by looking at some of the physicochemical parameters, which they used things like pKa, log p, and so on to work this stuff out to see if they could explain why it was ionizing better one way or the other. But I, you know, I keep coming back to that first paper that we talked about today with the machine learning modeling ionization, and those things don't seem to be the things that affect it the most. So um, even though that's that's the explanation I would probably give as well, like these guys, but. I'm fascinated to see how our understanding of ionization in LCMS develops over the next 10, 20, 30 years. We might look back on some of the things we thought now and think, yeah, that wasn't right. But in the crew model, they also compared them at three different. The main factors there were the, the com comparison of three different pHs, I think. So they had a lot more parameters to choose from. 
For sure, yeah. And here, I mean, it doesn't really matter in a sense. If they work well in one mode, then use that mode. But I think the reason they're thinking along these lines is because really what you want is one method that can analyze all of these different agents in one, you know, Novichok, but also some of these more traditional agents, maybe some future agents that come out. If you had one method that could do all of them, that's obviously much better because you don't necessarily know what you're looking for if there's an event. You just know there's been a chemical warfare agent used or you think there has been. Uh, you've probably got to do a lot of different targeted methods to find these things, which is not ideal. So if we could get them all in one method, all the better. Yeah, because if there was an incident, you wouldn't know which one was used. So you'd, yeah. And they mentioned that this is something they want to work on in the future. So we'll wait and see. Yep, highly polar, highly reactive, very low concentration. It's a, it's a tough, tough gig. So there you go. There's some uh, current research in the area of toxicology. No dumbed down science here. It's hardcore. <laughs> yeah, we go into the weeds sometimes, maybe sometimes too much. But hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.